Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guests today, I've got two guests, are Jodie Cantor and Megan Tui, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. They are the authors of She Said, which is the book all about how they did it. I managed to catch up with Jodie and Megan for about 25 minutes to half an hour just before they had to rush off to Heathrow Airport to basically fly back home to New York. This was obviously pre-lockdown and we had a very rushed amount of time in the studio, but also I feel like it was so brilliant that I got to meet them and do this episode. I hope you enjoy it. The book was absolutely everywhere when it came out and it continues to be one of the most powerful books I've read about the power of journalism and it really is an incredible book so if you haven't already read it please do grab a copy and you will not regret it. I just wanted to read you the blurb actually on the back of the book because it's the best way to sum up what the book is all about. On October 5th 2017 the New York Times published an article by Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey that helped change the world. Hollywood was talking as never before. Cantor and Toohey outmaneuvered Harvey Weinstein, his team of defenders and private investigators, convincing some of the most famous women in the world and some unknown ones to go on the record. Three years later, it led to his conviction. This is how they did it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks again to Megan, Jodie and everyone at Bloomsbury for making this episode happen. And I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do go and leave a rating on iTunes. It really helps people discover the podcast. Thanks again and see you next week. I'm so thrilled and kind of nervous be in the company of Jodie Cantor, Megan Toohey, the incredible award-winning, just amazing reporters and journalists of She Said, which I know I just said to you guys, it's all anyone can talk about. It is literally like the book of the year. And thank you so much for everything that you've done. Not to sound too, um, you know, sycophantic right at the beginning. Well, we're, we're, we're so thrilled to be here. We've been in the UK for six days and um, it's been such a pleasure to really uh, be able to talk uh, directly to uh, people here about this book that we that we've been working on for so long. Yeah, especially because it's a very British story. I'm not sure. I mean, I, for months, Megan and I have said, do, do people here know that Laura Madden, who lives a quiet life in Swansea, was one of the first two women on the record in the world Mm -hmm. about Weinstein and that she did so under, she went on the record under incredibly difficult circumstances. And we we kind of knew that nobody knew the backstory because Laura is very modest. Um, and, and, And part of the reason we were excited to publish the book, but especially in the UK was to finally tell readers what had really happened. Yes. Well, before we kind of dive into some of the, the bits in the book that, um, that I just cannot stop thinking about, if for the listeners, if you could just tell us a little bit about kind of your backstory and your careers and how you guys met and also kind of the things that you were working on before you worked on this. 
Sure. Yeah, we'd be happy to. Um, so, um, you know, my name is Megan Tui, and um, I am an investigative journalist at The New York Times. I actually came into The New York Times in 2016 to work on coverage of the presidential race at the time. So I was doing uh, coverage of Donald Trump up through the election. I actually worked on some of the stories of the women who came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct against him uh, and then helped cover his election. So that was a much different experience to the Weinstein investigation. Um, and before that, I had done a variety of coverage of sex crimes and other uh, issues uh, that that affect women. Uh, so, but, I, you know, I, I, I was still relatively new to the paper when the Weinstein investigation began. And, and Jody and I didn't actually even really know each other. So, um, and on top of everything, I was actually on maternity leave when I re received my first phone call from Jody, um, who was who was launching the investigation. So I'd been a longtime journalist at the Times, and uh, I had also been an investigative reporter. And what I had found in my work is that gender was like a flashlight that allowed us to see secrets. I'd reported on Amazon and Harvard Business School and Starbucks, these kind of big, tough corporations that we were going up against. And I consistently found that by understanding the experience of the women at the company, we could sort of see how power really worked there. Um, so, you know, Megan was my colleague in the investigative unit, but we didn't really know each other. She started in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I noticed this tall, striking woman. Uh, and I basically knew two things about her. One is that she was doing very tough Trump stories. I mean, really, um, really difficult level of reporting. And the other thing I noticed is that her stomach was like, you know, I could see her belly growing and growing and growing. And I had had two kids at the times. And I like, I just knew from looking at her that what she was doing um, was not was not easy. Um, and at one point I even brought her a bag of maternity clothes and left it uh, on her chair. But I really didn't know her when um, our editor, Rebecca Corbett, in uh, the late spring, early summer of 2017, said to me, call Megan Tuohy, even though she's on maternity leave. I had been working on the Harvey Weinstein investigation and I'd made some progress. Um, a couple of high-profile actresses had uh, confidentially told me really harrowing hotel room stories. But, you know, let's face it, most people did not want to talk. And when you call a stranger and ask them, you know, to, to potentially trust you to share a difficult story, there's still that question of what you say in the first 45 seconds of the phone call to bridge the mm -hmm. gap and, and get them to begin to believe in you. So Megan and I were talking about that, and she said that there was an argument she had used in the past during that sex crimes reporting she had done. She had said to women who had suffered, I can't change what's happened to you in the past, but if we work together, we may be able to turn your pain to some constructive purpose. And as soon as I heard that, I, I was like, that's it. That's mm -hmm. the case. That's the argument. That's it. Because it has to be about something bigger than yourself. It has to be about helping other people. You know, talking to a journalist is not easy. Going on the record is not easy. It Like, it sort of sucks, frankly, that women have to do this work of coming forward, especially when they did not do anything to get assaulted mm -hmm. or harassed. And something just clicked in me. And I, I asked our editor, what you know, when is Megan back 
from maternity leave, I, I knew that I wanted to work with her on the story. Because mm. I feel like the way that journalists and reporters are kind of conveyed in films and in these like dramatic stories of, of, of news being broken, it's always like the person hammering down the door and being like note under the door, being quite like aggressively like wanting to get a headline. And you guys did things so, so differently. And I, I wondered if that kind of partnership of you two working together, it almost like added something. Well, we were we were reporting on our cohort. We're women in our forties, and it turns out the that the preponderance of alleged Weinstein victims are also women in their forties. So even though you know we were certainly never actresses, in fact, we did not know any actresses mm-hmm. uh, when this investigation began, and we were certainly never film assistants. There was a quality to the reporting of. Um, looking a little bit in the mirror, like when I first showed up in uh, Rowena Chu's driveway unannounced in California, which is a very mm-hmm. awkward thing to do. And, you know, in the book, there's a story about, um, you know, how that moment grew quite complicated. I Her garage door was open. And um, I, the first thing I thought was, you know, I have that car seat. That's my toddler car seat. I have the same car seat. And I just, I guess, you know, we 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 did... We did feel um, some, you know, identity or generational connection with these women. But at the same time, it's your job as a reporter to to hold yourself at a bit of a distance, frankly. And it, and it was certainly a balancing act of this investigation, how to be aggressive in the investigation while remaining respectful of the of the the victims that we were encountering along the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is often, you know, you're with this type of reporting, you're often talking to asking women to open up about like perhaps the most painful experience of their life. And so while we were determined to especially the more that we learned, the more that this pattern of um, alleged predatory behavior came into focus, the more we started to believe that, in fact, these weren't just allegations from the past that Weinstein, if we weren't able to publish the truth, that Weinstein would very well, you know, may very well go on to hurt more people. Um, The more that those moral high, the moral stakes of the investigation rose, um, you know, the more aggressive we became. But, you know, every step of the way, we also recognize that this is, you know, that these are decisions that that women that victims have to make on their own that you can't force somebody to do something that she doesn't want to do i mean the last thing we wanted to do was sort of create more pain uh, in the lives of these women totally and i um reading the book as everyone probably found it's 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 absolutely mind-blowing the lengths that people can go to silence women to armor up against the truth to stay in power and you're obviously both not naive in any way like you are reporters but um did you have any moments of just like pure shock yourselves like these settlements are just the fact that they couldn't even talk to their therapist the fact they couldn't even speak to their own families it's like I I was shook when I I read this you nailed it I mean I in the summer of 2017 I came here to London to secretly meet with Zelda Perkins a former Weinstein assistant uh who had left her job because of really what had happened to a colleague, Rowena Chu, the woman with the the car seat in her driveway. They were assistants together, 24 and 25 years old. Uh, Rowena came to Zelda with a terrible story of predation from Weinstein, and they banded together and tried to do something about it. And instead, they ended up with the settlement. And 20 years later, I'm sitting at this restaurant with Zelda in London. And, um, you know, in our line of work, 
documents are very important. Um, and I had really been hoping that I would see her settlement papers, but you have to be careful. You don't want to push too hard. Megan had actually, as I was leaving for the trip, Megan was like texting me these encouraging emojis, like, you're going to see the settlement papers, you know, you're going to do it. It's going to, don't worry, go for it, go for it. So Zelda, in fact, um, drew her settlement papers out of her bag. She did not have a complete set because they would not let her hold on to a complete copy. Um, and you know, what she was doing was so brave because she was, she was defying a legal agreement. I mean, she was facing legal consequences just for meeting me for lunch and talking about her own experiences. And she began to read me, you know, the, the, these old faded black and white sentences. And it's exactly the details you're talking about. You know, you can't warn other women about what happened. If you want to see a doctor, a therapist about what's happened, you need special permission. If you want to tell an accountant where you got this money, you need special uh, permission. You know, if the truth ever comes out, you're still required to somehow try to, you know, spin or suppress it. And um, I think the bigger shock than that is that even though this settlement was particularly suffocating, these kinds of agreements, it turns out, are signed by women in the UK and the US every single day. This is really kind of our system for dealing with sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And nobody, not even those of us who had covered gender for a long time at the New York Times, had fully understand understood what was happening because these agreements are not taught in law school. They're not litigated in open court. It was like we had this underground system for dealing with the problem, except it didn't really deal with the problem. It silenced women mm -hmm. and enabled predators to go on to hurt other women. And we we had we had realized some of it at the time of the of our original investigation. We had been able to connect some of the dots of how this alleged predator had been able to engage in this behavior and cover his tracks for so many years. But another one of the reasons that we wrote the book is that we had this opportunity to do additional reporting and bring together all these other pieces of the puzzle. So we were able to sort of slowly but surely pull the curtain back on the machinery that was in place to silence the women. These secret settlements that you know Weinstein. We were able to document that he had paid as many as 12 secret settlements stretching from 1990 to 2015 to cover his tracks. And it wasn't just the restrictive clauses that made our jaws, jaws drop. It was also who was involved. Like Gloria Allred is probably one of the most famous feminist attorneys in the country. She's always on TV by a client side talking about the importance to give voice to women. Well, she has also been deep in the business of secret settlements. She had been involved in a secret settlement that had silenced one of her firm had been involved in a secret settlement that had silenced one of Harvey Weinstein's victims in 2004. Uh, she had been involved in secret settlements that had uh, silenced you know, victims of Larry Nasser and Bill O'Reilly. You know, these lawyers um, have largely sort of set the 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 tone or the the way that we have kind of framed how we discuss these secret settlements. But you know, they make as much as forty percent cut off of them, and so that was a surprise to us. And it wasn't just that. I mean, her and you know, the, uh, probably another one of the most jaw dropping things that we encountered in the course of our investigation was that Gloria Allred's daughter, Lisa Bloom, who's another very feminist, very famous feminist attorney in the United States, you know, that she had crossed sides to work with Harvey Weinstein to help 
him evade scrutiny. She had basically taken all of her experience working with victims, harnessed it, and worked with him to work, use that to work with him to work against uh, women that he thought might go on the record. So really, at every single turn, we were encountering sort of surprising discoveries about not just the systems, but also the individuals that had been in place. This was really ultimately like an x-ray into abuse of power. Mm. I mean, it's just that I I was turning the pages like at the most rapid speed. I was like, I cannot believe. And, and just how wild it is to think that all these women felt so, so, so deeply alone when actually there were so many people all together going through this. And I'd, I'd read somewhere that recently, you know, at your events, I know this book is powerful, but your events have been so powerful and that someone in the audience actually broke their settlement, you know, verbally kind of, I I don't know what the turn of phrase is, but basically broke the settlement at the actual event. I mean, it was in Los Angeles um, and we were doing an event with America Ferreira and it was the final question of the Q&A and a woman, you know, I'd say middle-aged stood up and said, I worked in technology 20 years ago. I was harassed and assaulted by my boss Because I'm a butch lesbian, nobody ever thought that I could be victimized in that way by a man. So nobody believed me. And uh, I I can't take the silence anymore. I'm breaking Mm -hmm. it. And so Megan, who was taking the question, said, so you're, you're breaking your NDA right here and right now? And she said, yes. And then, you know, we were sort of afraid to ask her any more questions because it was a room full of hundreds of people and we weren't sure exactly what she wanted to say in front of everybody. But, you know, it's it's such a tiny sign. Like, we don't know. It's not a huge number of women who have broken these settlement NDAs yet, but it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen. I think it's five women have broken their, uh, their NDAs with Weinstein. And one of the things we're watching is to see whether these women do face any legal consequences Or if it turns out that these were just tools of intimidation all along. Mm. It was really interesting also hearing your opinions on kind of your own bias or kind of, um, I don't know, your frame of mind on, on like Hollywood actresses and also like how far your own like empathy, sympathy can go. But actually hearing you kind of say that actually if this is the the kind of tip of the iceberg in terms of even the richest, you know, most successful people with the most amount of lawyers and teams around them, if they can suffer, then what is going on underneath? You, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, I will confess that when I came back from the New York, to the New York Times after being on maternity leave and Jody was... Um, you know, a couple months into the Weinstein investigation and had started to collect the stories of some of these famous actresses like Gwyneth Paltrow, and I was deciding whether or not to join her, I will confess that I paused for a moment uh, and and, and voiced uh, some of my reservations. It was, you know, I had done done stories about like fairly disenfranchised women who had been victims of sex crimes and how the systems had failed them and ignored them. Um, And in in the process of doing those stories, it helped bring, you know, help bring delayed justice to some of those 
those women. In investigative reporting, you know, we are looking for one of the things that we do is to try to give voice to the voiceless. And I will confess that I had a hard time imagining how somebody like Gwyneth Paltrow could need the help of the New York Times. Um, these these women seem far from voiceless to me. They seem to be the embodiment of sort of celebrity and resources. Uh, but, you know, Jody, Jody sort of made the point, which was that, you know, if these women have been victimized and are scared to speak out, that that means that nobody is immune mm -hmm. and that if we can help bring this truth to light, we might be able to make a difference. So true. And um, it was really interesting as well hearing about, um, you know, the, the, the celebrities who on the flip side have had awful press for a long, long time, like people like Lena Dunham, for example, who in the book, you know, helped kind of, I, I think one of you said that it was like a kind of celebrity switchboard of like ringing up and being like, can, can you get me this person? And it's just all of those details behind the scenes. In terms of writing the book, you could name whoever you wanted to name right in terms of... Um, no, 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 exactly. <laughs> no. So here was, the, here was part of the reason to write the book and here was part of the challenge of writing the book. What happened in the initial Harvey Weinstein investigation was mostly secret, even after we broke the story. And so our mission with this book was to bring you on the whole journey. I mean, these events have come to mean so much to so many people, and we had never been able to tell the true story of what had happened. I mean, we knew that there were all of these surprises in terms of who helped and who hindered all of these dramatic moments, the final confrontations with Weinstein in the halls of the New York Times. Mm. But a lot of this information was off the record. So in order to kind of bring you on the journey and bring you to those moments, we had to do a lot of um, talking to the original parties involved, uh, you know, in some cases finding kind of creative ways uh, to get the material on the record. Um, a lot of people actually just agreed to let us tell the story outright. But then there was also, you know, another year of reporting to push beyond what we already knew because th there were so many unanswered questions. You know, the real moral horror of the Weinstein story is why so many people protected Weinstein and not the women for 40 years. So we had questions about that. We had questions about the Weinstein company and what happened in that workplace. Uh, about Bob Weinstein, Harvey's mm. brother. And, you know, this is a real sort of, you know, are you your brother's keeper, uh, mm. you know, kind of story. Um, and then we also felt the hardest decision was how do you end the book? Because we felt it would be too easy to end it with the kind of triumph of publication of the Weinstein story. So the book pushes past that and it gets into the messiness of Me Too, the debate about it, and specifically the the story of what really happened to Christine Blasey Ford mm. as she tried to come forward. Yes, which seems so fresh in everyone's minds. Of I mean, following that was just in, insanely frustrating. Can even believe that the same sticking points were coming over and over again of, you know, what people were drinking, what people were, what you know, what time they had met up and. It's like, why are we focusing on those things? Mm. You know, I think, you know, millions of people watched her testimony that day, watched her get up in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and and tell her account of being allegedly sexually assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh and then watched his testimony afterwards. Um, and I think people came away really divided. I mean, some people saw her as the hero of the Me Too movement. Some people saw her as a villain of the Me Too movement. And once we we had some unique access to her legal team, as, as, you know, during that time, and then we also obtained the first interview of her after the 
after her testimony and mm-hmm. conducted dozens of hours of interviews with her. And as we started to piece together what had happened, that behind the scenes sort of path of her testifying to and t- her to her testimony in Washington, mm-hmm. we realized that it was so much more complicated mm-hmm. than either side knew and also really came to encompass so many of the unresolved complicated questions that we're all facing, I think, two years into this, uh, this sort of unprecedented uh, moment in time. Yes. And and one of the main things that stuck with me throughout the book and also afterwards is just the very simple fact that these women's lives will never be the same. And it's an ongoing, you know, reading and hearing about Rowena Chu and just how you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, you're um, part of this book and you're doing all this public speaking. And she's like, yes, I have to. But this is like a, a deeply personal journey that I'm on, which will never go away. The last chapter of the book is this really unusual group interview. You know, because the book deals with the reporting that, you know, one or both of us did on uh, women who had allegations against Donald Trump, Harvey Weinstein and Brett Kavanaugh. We decided to bring them together at the end to meet. And we gathered um, in Los Angeles. We were at Gwyneth Paltrow's home. She had generously volunteered her living room. And we were there for a group interview. Um, And Christine Blasey Board came too. Uh, And that was really just a few months after she had testified. And what the question Megan and I wanted to put to them was, what is life like on the other side, because we knew these women had deliberated so hard over coming forward. In many cases, we had been the ones on the other end of the phone talking to them about it, in some cases, encouraging them Mm -hmm. to do it. And so we felt like we had to come back to them and say, you know, okay, how did it actually turn out for you? And I think, you know, in every case, it was surprising. You know, there's no black and white. Um, It was transformative for almost everybody. I'd say, you know, for Ashley Judd, it was transformative in the sense that she was treated like a heroine and, you know, she's been given awards and she's teaching at Harvard now. Uh, But for some people, it was transformative in really unexpected ways. And uh, one thing that was, you know, initially we were sort of asking the questions, but as the hours rolled on, what happened is that they began to coach one another um, in their experiences. Christine Blasey Ford was expressing... um, some trouble with dealing with the internet and seeing, you know, patently false things that were written mm-hmm. about her. And what do you do in that situation? And Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow said, hey, we are actually experts in living, you know, under total scrutiny and with crazy tabloid mm-hmm. coverage. And we're going to be your coaches um, and tell you what tell you what to do. Ashley said, if an alcoholic can stay away from one drink at a time, you can stay away from the comment section of the internet. And then probably the most interesting twist was that Rowena Chu at that point still was not on the record and everybody had agreed to protect her privacy. Uh, But in fact, after that gathering and in part after talking to Christine Blasey Ford, who'd had, you know, a not easy road uh, Mm -hmm. that she had followed, Rowena decided to come forward. Wow. I mean, it's it's fascinating when you see how each woman kind of has maybe been slightly treated differently with in the comment section or whatever, this idea of like a good and bad victim and like what that looks like and how certain people in the book, maybe they weren't like as, I don't know, believable or things like that. And that, that was really mind-blowing to me. 
You know, one of the things that we saw as we reported on, you know, women who had made allegations against Donald Trump and Weinstein and then Christine Blasey Ford and the case of Kavanaugh was that the women who made uh, came forward with allegations against people within the political realm, like had so much more of a brutal mm-hmm. experience. Um you know, I think that the politi- you know, the both the United States and also the UK are so politically polarized at this point that when when people do come forward and make allegations, it quickly descends into holy war with both sides taking up arms against each other. And in some ways, the women almost becoming kind of collateral damage to the whole thing. Um almost being ignored. I mean, almost being forgotten. Um, and so there was, it was, it was, well, that, that has been pr- one of the most striking things in the course of our reporting was to just see how much more brutal it is for those, those women. Mm, so interesting to see that across the spectrum. Why do you think some people change their mind and want to help? Oh, great question. I, you know, look, one of the surprises of this book is, you know, who helped and who hindered? Who would have predicted that, you know, Lisa Bloom, mega famous feminist attorney, would have crossed lines to help Harvey Weinstein and that Erwin Ryder, who first appeared to us as a kind of loyal Weinstein henchman, you know, his accountant of 30 years, turned out to be the deep throat of the investigation and gave us essential documents that helped us break the story. In Erwin's case, uh, it's... It's a it's a long arc. I mean, you'll you know, if you read the book, you'll see mm-hmm. he knew of wrongdoing initially and did not act. Uh, that was sort of phase one. Phase two, spurred in part by the Cosby headlines he saw, he tried to act and he failed. Um, and actually, one motivation for him is that he told his daughter what was happening at the company, and she said, "Dad, you, you've got to do something. Mm-hmm. You've you've got you've got a responsibility." But he um, everything he tried failed. It, it it didn't work. And he basically threw up his hands. Um, and then act three is that, you know, we come into the picture and little do we know it, but the supposedly loyal henchman we're calling is actually a guy who's been deeply alarmed about Weinstein's behavior for years and very frustrated at his own failure to do anything. And so that is why he decided to help us. I think that readers of this book will see that this was ultimately a story in the kind of contrast and competition of the cowardice of the people who crossed over to protect Weinstein, the individuals and the institutions that became complicit in his abuse, and the the courage of um, uh, you know individuals and institutions that ultimately were willing to stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And in the end, you know this this in, in the end the truth prevailed. Mm-hmm. You know facts. Mattered. I really believe that just in life, like the truth will always, always, always come out. And I mean, this book is just, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know what else to say. You guys are amazing. <laughs> um, this isn't a shallow question. This is just a genuine question. Will there be a film, do you think? <laughs> it's sort of embarrassing to talk about, but but there are plans for a film, which of course is really different than an actual film. Um, but uh, interestingly, um, you know, it, here's the funny story. A day or two before publication of our first story about Weinstein, something really bad happened, which is that Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, meaning these sort of trade publications, caught wind of what we were doing. And they published these stories saying, the New York Times has a big investigation coming of Harvey Weinstein. And we panicked because we don't want our work visible until it's meant to be visible. 
Um, and they talked to Weinstein for the story and he gave this, he denied, uh, not only did he deny, you know, any allegations of bad behavior, he denied the fact that we were doing a story, even though we had been talking to him all week. And he, the quote he gave was, he said, it sounds so good. I want to buy the movie rights. And so now yeah, like it would make a great movie. To sort of suggest it was like such a fictional, you know, what a fictional claim that there's such an investigation oh, wow. that it would actually make for a good movie. And this is a who knows, it may, it may, yeah, it may yeah. very well turn out to be to be the case. Yeah. Wow. It will be a good good movie, but um, for all the wrong reasons. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I know that you've had a packed schedule and you've kind of crammed this one in. So I really appreciate it. Oh, we're happy and, to be uh, here with you. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks yes. Again. Thank you so much. Thank you. 